Well, good morning. It is an absolute joy to be with you this morning. Uh, obviously, I'm not physically with you, uh, but it's a privilege and a joy to be able to be here from Birmingham to be with you in Surbiton. Uh, we have such fond memories of our time at Christchurch and our time in Surbiton, so it's a joy to be able to share with you uh, this morning in these really challenging and strange days. Uh, I remember just before we left Surbiton, we were actually packing up the moving lorry from Denon Road. Uh, and uh, I can remember an elderly neighbour who knew that I was a church minister. Uh, and she came to me and asked with a concerned look on her face, uh, where, where is it you're moving to? Uh, and I told her that we were moving to Birmingham. And then <laughs> she, with a pained look, put her hand on my shoulder and with reverence said, still. It's a calling, isn't it? Uh, now, I don't know what she thought of the difference between Birmingham and Surbiton, but it was pretty clear uh, that in her mind, if you wanted to go to Birmingham, it had to be something that was not what you would choose to do. Still, it's a calling, isn't it? Uh, well, that story came to mind as we're thinking this morning about Daniel. Uh, because Daniel is a story, as we all know, a bit in the Bible in which God's people are not in a place that they would want to be. They have been wrenched out of Jerusalem, out of their homeland, and are in Babylon. And the big question that goes throughout the whole book is, how do God's people live in a strange land? How do God's people live in a place that isn't where they'd want it to be? How do God's people live in a society that isn't for God? And today uh, we're going to particularly focus on how do God's people pray when you're living in a place or a nation or a society that isn't for God. And as we jump into this, I think it's worth reminding ourselves about ways throughout history and throughout the Bible that God's people have often reacted and responded to living in society. There's basically five different groups, different ways uh, that Christians have often lived in societies. Uh, the first uh, way you could say is they've blended in. And these are people that because they're living in society that is not going the way of God, uh, have compromised their values. They've sort of just blended in and not been distinctive, not kept the biblical ideal of what it is to live for God. So blending in is one way that people have lived. The second way that some people have often lived is the opposite of blending away. It's, it's kind of hiding away. It, it, it's because you still want to live for God, but because society seems so difficult to do so, you sort of shrink back and your faith becomes just a private thing. Uh, and in public, you don't really talk about God, but in private, you live for him. You hide your faith away and there's a big divide between public and private. So that's the second way. Third way, some people go rather than blending in and rather than hiding away, as it were, some people think it's right to kind of go to war with the culture. As it were, to be militant and to be anti and to be very opposed and always, always kind of fighting and conducting a culture war against the things in society that God won't be pleased with. Going to war and trying to force the culture, as it were, to live to biblical standards. That's the third option that some people have lived. The fourth way is rather than those three, 
you know, blending in, hiding away, or sort of, as it were, kind of going to war with culture. Some Christians kind of throughout the Bible and throughout history have sort of had a sort of triumphalistic optimism, a sort of um, kind of revivalism that almost believing that just around the corner, everything's going to come good and suddenly the nation will be Christian and everything will be fantastic and everyone will be singing on the streets. And wouldn't we wish that was so? Uh, but yet, it's not quite been as we hoped it would be. There's four common ways. Uh, well, I want to suggest that each of those four ways, there are some positives to it sometimes, and some necessity sometimes. But actually, I want to suggest that biblically there is a fifth way that is quite different to all of those. Rather than blending in and not being distinctive, rather than just hiding away to make it a private faith, rather than kind of going to war with culture and always on a campaign to try and force people to adapt to Christian values, and rather than sort of just the kind of naive optimism, I want to suggest the biblical way is to actually get stuck in, is to recognise that the culture we're in is broken and needs fixing, and the good news of Jesus is the hope for our nation. And so rather than distancing and rather than blending in, actually getting stuck in, not being compromised by the world, not adopting the world's values, but actually taking kingdom values into our workplaces, into society, into government, into wherever we go, because we go as followers of king, the king, people of light. And I think that can be illustrated by the way that we see Daniel pray in chapter 9. Uh, because God's people are facing a massive problem. We read it, we heard it uh, in the very opening verses, when basically Daniel begins to get a glimpse that the desolation of Jerusalem, the destruction, the kind of crippling of Jerusalem was going to last 70 years. God's people have a real problem. They're in a place they don't want to be, and yet their homeland is in devastation and would go beyond, be in devastation for quite some time. How then do you pray when you're in a society that seems opposed to your values? I want to suggest a number of different ways. Firstly, you pray with utter humility. Did you notice how Daniel began his prayer? Let me read it to you. He begins by saying, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. Not they have sinned and done wrong. We. It's a posture of utter humility. A recognition that actually if culture is broken, it may well be that we've played our part in that brokenness. Rather than just saying the problem is out there, actually the problem is in here. Not the culture warriors trying to fix others, but recognising we need fixing ourselves. There's a great line in a U2 song uh, in which Bono sings, There is no them, only us. I love that line because it's such a helpful reminder. When we're tempted to immediately think the problem is out there with them, with that group of people or that political viewpoint or that whatever, Actually, Daniel begins, we have sinned, we have done wrong, a humility. 
I never forget a dear old friend who was a faith-filled and faithful prayer, who she would always begin in her old age with her big long list of things she prayed for so regularly with the words, Lord, I am so sorry. We pray with humility. That's the first thing. The second way we pray is not just with a humility that kind of cripples, but we pray with confidence as well. And that's a right humility. Verse 4 again. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love and, uh, with, and keep, keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And verse 9, he goes on, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we've rebelled against him. Pray with humility because we pray with confidence knowing who God is. He is the great God, the Lord God, the covenant-keeping God, the merciful God. We pray remembering who God is and what he's done. How can we pray with a humility saying, God, I've sinned? Because we're confident that the God we're going to is both merciful, is forgiving, and keeps his covenant even when we don't. So we pray with utter confidence. And so in a society that so often seems opposed to what God might want to, uh, what God might be calling them to do, actually we pray to the one who is faithful. We pray with confidence. And that word covenant, did you notice it? Let me read it again. Verse 4, who keeps his covenant of love. When we don't, he does. Therefore, we have hope and confidence. So we pray with humility. We pray with confidence. Uh, the third thing is this. We pray with a realism. A realism. Let me read to you verse 10. Do you notice what's happening? Uh, Daniel is praying, pouring out his heart. Uh, and he says this, verse 10. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we've sinned against you. Those are some kind of terrifying words in some respects. But they're words of reality that actually they haven't lived God's way and there is a consequence for that. There is brokenness everywhere they look. There is pain. There is wrong. There is evil. And we pray with the reality, not a sort of triumphalism that means we forget what it means to live in a world where there is suffering and pain and hardship. We recognise there are serious problems in the world with serious consequences. And I think this is really important to remember when we pray. I think particularly if you're a follower of Jesus, it can be easy to somehow think that you shouldn't be honest when you pray. Uh, that because the gospel is good news that we therefore somehow can't um, be real about how broken things are and how painful things are. And particularly at the moment, haven't we seen that? Where there is so much to lament in our world, we can be real as we pray. The Bible invites us. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? There is an honesty about Christian prayer. 
that is not just all good. There's a lamenting before God that this world is broken. We turned away from God that has consequences in our lives, that has consequences in our society, and that has consequences as a whole planet. We pray with reality. But we don't just stay there because there's a fourth aspect to prayer. Yes, we pray with humility. We pray with confidence. We pray with realism. But on this Remembrance Sunday, we also pray with remembrance. Because Daniel, as he prays, looks back. Listen to verse 15. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We've sinned, we've done wrong. Do you see what he's doing? As he prays, he's looking back to a day when God obviously rescued them. Uh, and for them, it was when they were slaves in Egypt and God ripped them out towards their own promised land. As it were, another day when they weren't in the land that lived for God, but God rescued them from that. And he goes on, verse 16, Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem. And I think for us, we live the other side of the cross of Jesus, that place where Jesus took all pain, all sin, all wrath, all anger on him and turned away and so turned it away from us as it were, we look back to that day of rescue where God stepped in. And on this Remembrance Sunday, when we remember the sacrifice of so many for us, uh, the sacrifice where people gave their lives for us, and we're so thankful today, there is a greater sacrifice in which the God of the universe gave his own son for us. And therefore, all of the judgment for our sin has been turned away for those who trust in Christ. That is worth remembering. And I think one of the aspects about prayer that's why, why it's so good to remember that is that therefore it can be easy to get caught up into presuming that we have to pray in the right way to get what we are praying for. As if I just pray using a certain formula, if I certain technique, then maybe God will give, give me what I'm praying for. But that reminds us that actually because God is the great rescuer, he is for us, therefore it's not about the words. We can trust him, he is for us. We remember that as we pray. So we pray with humility, we pray with confidence, we pray with realism, but we pray remembering. Uh, but there's a fifth and final thing, that having done all of that, we pray not just looking backwards, we pray looking forwards, we pray with expectation. Listen to verse 16, verse 17, sorry. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour. And he goes, look at verse 19, listen to how many exclamation marks there are. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, don't delay, because your city and your people bear your name. There's an expectation that having recognised who we are, that's the humility. 
Having recognised who God is, that's the confidence. Having recognised the pain and the brokenness in the world. Having recognised that God is the rescuer, therefore we pray with utter confidence and utter hope and expectation that God is in the business of answering prayer and God is in the business of building his kingdom. And so on a day where we begin this new chapter of lockdown, we pray looking forwards. I don't know how you're feeling about this next season of lockdown. I guess for many of you, it feels so heavy right now. And the beauty of the good news of Jesus is we know is God is for us. And therefore we can trust that even now he is doing beautiful things. And that one day, one day, we'll be face to face with him. There's hope, my friends, even in the middle of a global pandemic. So friends, on this day, be free as we pray because we pray humbly, but we pray with confidence. We pray realistically, but we pray remembering who God is and what he's done. And therefore, we pray with expectation. May God bless you as you strive to live for him during these challenging days. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus, that there is always, always, always hope and therefore, may we be people of prayer, recognising who we are, recognising who you are, remembering what you've done for us, for this sinful, broken world. And therefore, we look forward with hope and expectation. Thank you, King above all kings. Amen.